Hello, all you lovely listeners, and welcome back to Season 3 of Therapy Works, the podcast that confronts some of life's biggest challenges. I'm your host, Julia Samuel, a mother of four, a best-selling author, and as you might have guessed, a psychotherapist. Each week, I invite you into my therapy room, where I'll be joined by a well-known voice or an unknown voice who will open up about a particular struggle they have faced or are still facing. The mission of this podcast is to expand our understanding of therapy and prove that meaningful conversations that may contain difficult emotions can be profoundly healing. Let's see who is joining us this week. Hello, Amber Jeffrey. For those of you who don't know her, Amber is 25 years old, host of the Grief Gang podcast, and your mum died six years ago. So we know each other, Amber, from the bereavement world. We've worked on projects together, but we've never had a therapeutic, intimate conversation about the death of your mum. And so now is our... Now's our time. First time. (laughs) (laughs) It's so interesting. And obviously when you asked me to come on, that was my initial thought. I felt so honoured to be able to work with you throughout the last couple of years and um, build like a friendship with you. But actually, I feel like there's been times when I know you will tap into something for me that I feel no other like friendship or relationship that I've built with in the space can tap into but I'm really really grateful and excited to be here today and see what comes of our conversation. Should we start at the beginning in telling our listeners the challenge you've been facing and had to overcome? Yeah my backstory so yeah my mum passed away in 2016 to a very sudden heart attack. I was 19 at the time and had no previous experience of very immediate bereavements. My dad's mother passed away about a month before um, my mum, but she lives in the Caribbean and I, I met her once. So that was kind of my own real first taste of bereavement. But losing my mum and the death of my mum was the first real up close bereavement that absolutely shook the table for me and being 19 um you know you're at a very age where you're quite impressionable and quite you're just figuring out who the hell you want to be and I felt like I had a really strong and clear trajectory of where I wanted to go and then losing my mum just put an absolute bomb in it and I thought I have no idea who I am or what I want to be And fast forwarding three years, I just kept my head down. I say kept my head down, but kept my head down like a fiery raging bull and just bulldozed through every relationship in my life and just self-sabotaged and imploded. And until summer of 2019, when I said enough was enough and when my mental health said you need to do something before something quite bad happens because you haven't dealt really with the loss of your mum. I can really understand that in that the speed of her death at such a transitional age, it's like a kind of tipping point. I mean, at 19, you were by no means an adult, although legally one. You were just figuring out you know, developmentally, how I'm going to be as an adult, where you can separate from your mum, where you can step back and sort of choose which bits of what she believes or how she was, you could incorporate and which you could really say that's her and that's not me. But with her dying so traumatically and suddenly, all of that stops, doesn't it? Your capacity to do anything transitional or psychological is utterly splintered and it sounds like the rage of grief which isn't fully acknowledged I don't think because we don't like anger anger isn't very popular we, we can deal with sadness a bit <laughs> 
But what you're describing of that earthquake of feelings that was going on inside was blowing up your life, actually, because you weren't dealing with them and allowing them. Totally. I, I, do you know what, Julie, as well? I feel like in only in the last couple of years since I started Grief Gang and started to understand my own grief better through conversation and other people's losses and, and talking to them through the podcast is understanding that I didn't like purposefully choose to be angry every single day of my life. It was just that being angry was the most familiar feeling to me and the most comfortable and that actually saying to these people close to me who I wanted to support me instead of saying I really need you and I am so heartbroken at this loss of my mum and I don't know how to go on every single day it was easier to say expletive sorry fuck you and get out of my life just to push push and push I couldn't let that wall down and I didn't really understand the magnitude or how deep this grief ran through me um I just thought this is, must be quite normal. Everybody must feel this like rage like every day of their life. I really kind of named myself as just this really angry person who was quite quick to fly off the chain. Now it's really, I look back at that time of my life and I think, gosh, I am far, very far from that girl. And anger is now, it is quite a scary feeling to me to really get to that state of anger again. But I, I can now give that younger version of Amber quite a lot of grace. And I was nasty to people. I was nasty to myself. And I really used to give myself a hard time of, you you did some bad things, Amber. And now I can, I can hold myself accountable and I can give myself grace. But that's taken a lot of time and a lot of work. <laughs> so I'm really kind of touched by your awareness of how you can give yourself grace for that raging young person and recognition that it was all that you had in your tank because if you weren't really angry, you probably would have been scared that you'd completely fall apart. Mm. And I'm also aware that there are lots of different parts of you and that there's still that young 19-year-old Amber. Mm. And I wonder, as you're looking at yourself now, having learned so much, what she would say. Do you know what as well? Recently, I've been reading, obviously, as you know, the wonderful Carrie Ad Lloyd, You Are Not Alone. And there's a chapter in there, a segment, when she talks about Teenage Grief Club and how she herself very much undermined the age that she lost her father and kind of said, oh, well, it would be no different if I lost my father at 25 or 32. But that actually losing her, her father at 15 and me and my mum at 19 is a very big deal. And I couldn't even tell you what that last 19th year of my life was. It was such a blur, that first year of grief. And I speak a lot about how I was given these almost new goggles of life. And no matter how much I wanted to peel them off and still see the world as my peers at 19, quite carefree and frivolous, I couldn't. I was trying to pull these goggles off, but I could now see the world and the fragility of life for what it was, of knowing Someone you love can be here one day and be dropped down dead the next. And I used to fritter between, oh, that's really quite, I don't know, empowering of go out and live your fucking life. And then also, oh my God, someone can you love can die tomorrow and giving me that anxiety. And I'd never really suffered with anxiety around that. If I could go back to her and like tell her one thing, I often do always go back to don't be so angry at the world and everybody that is in it. You are drinking the poison and wanting everybody else to die. You're literally self-sabotaging on the highest level and you're the one who is coming out most miserable. What the fuck are you doing? Let's put something in place. What does she say though? Oh, she would tell me to fuck off probably. <laughs> <laughs> in telling you to fuck off she's saying what though like you don't get it I honestly did walk around and I was meeting some people who 
had walked the same path of grief and they would tell me, you know, it won't always feel like this. And I wanted to just tell them to get away from me. Like, how on earth can you ever say that? It seemed impossible that I could ever get to a stage where her anniversary wouldn't be quite as painful or that we could actually have a celebration on her birthday and Christmases will actually feel joyous again. All of that, I just thought, you're deluded. And actually, guiltily, I definitely did presume that people who said that didn't actually really love their people. And I know that's really problematic to say, but now I'm at a stage where these days are I don't want to say easier, but they're softer to me. I can acknowledge the grief and the sadness all at once and the joy. And I love my mum just as much as before. I love her, if not more. Feeling of that, I used to think that people who would say, it won't always feel that bad or you'll carry it with you always, but, you know, some days will be better. I was thinking, oh, well, you didn't clearly love your person like I love my mum. And it's just like, oh gosh, hindsight, what an incredible thing. (laughs) And also, I think there is a belief, and there's a sort of a grain in truth in all of these things, which is that the pain keeps us close to the person that died, that when you most intensely feel it, mm. you feel like you're honouring them and you're showing them how much agony that you're in. Mm. And that there is, I don't know if it's a battle, but there's a conflict. Like if I do let that go, I'm frightened I'm going to lose you, but Mm -hmm. also I'm some way abandoning you, that you're going to feel I don't love you anymore. Mm -hmm. And that's very confusing. Very confusing. And I think when I started Grief Gang, there was definitely an element of turn this pain into purpose to keep like your mum close to keep and to show like to put her on the pedestal and that still is true to this day but there was definitely an undercurrent of this will prove the love I have for my mum and knowing that that can only run for so long and I think that's potentially why I've gone for so long with grief gang and and it's molded and changed because my my like objective of it and my purpose of it has changed from obviously I want to share my mum with the world and and to continue her legacy and I want to help people on a wider scale um but the whole notion of turning pain into purpose it sounds very contradictory for for me to say it now but I think it can be quite damaging sometimes because I know definitely for me a little bit at times it was because you run the risk of not letting your like person like die in vain, and it's a good thing. But when it's at, when that's the soul of what you're doing something for, I do feel like that momentum will eventually wear off. You have to find that if there is a bigger purpose to this, what is the bigger purpose? And don't get me wrong, there are days when the, my purpose is. I want to do this for my mum. I'd love to talk about my mum and our, our relationship and and the grief of losing her. Um, But yeah, turning the big push, I feel like there is sometimes for grieving people a real big push um, from wider society to be like, do something in their name, do something in their legacy. And some people are like, I can love and grieve for my person quietly. Like I don't have to go and create an Instagram account. I don't have to go and sign up to the London Marathon to do something for it. I can love and and honour and respect my person and not be forced the hand of trying to create something purposeful out of this pain like sometimes a tragedy is quite simply just a tragedy um and we don't necessarily need to find I don't want to say silver lining but the purpose of what this is finding out the reason as to why we've been dealt this hand and have to create something I think what you're saying which I'm very curious about and have thought a great deal about is this incredibly complex navigation between turning your grief into purpose, which is also in some way a blocking of you feeling of the pain and that the pain is sitting there and you're kind of avoiding it. And so there isn't anything wrong in that per se. And also there is a, a risk that at some point that grief does need to be expressed because how we heal is by allowing ourselves to feel the pain. And also I'm really applauding your recognition that we don't have to 
go on Facebook or Instagram or run a marathon to show how much we feel in our loss, that grieving mm-hmm. up until really social media was a an intensely mm-hmm. private, personal, intimate process. Yeah. And there is a real mm-hmm. benefit in sharing and you've benefited many others and others have benefited from each other through these incredible communities. I suppose I'm curious, mm-hmm. you know, you've brought this up, so I'm interested that in for you... Mm-hmm. You're 25, you're working in the area of bereavement, you're hearing about deaths every day. Is there a cost to that for you engaging in an innocent, fun, playful world, which I would expect a 25-year-old to be doing? It's really interesting. And I've been doing Grief Gang for it'll be four years this September. And so I started at 22. and. This work, as you know, Julia, you've been for for so many years, it's heavy. And Mm. um, I never started Grief Gang with the intention for it to be the scale um, or have like the publicity to what it has today. It very much started as just like a personal blog for me, just to share quite literally those past three years from 2016 to 2019 to just brain dump all those feelings into this page. It was a way of expressing yourself because therapy hadn't worked, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a way of expressing because in that summer of 2019, when I hit that brick wall of like, oh, well, this grief is coming to say hello now. I tried the therapy route and I explored a few different avenues. It just wasn't sticking for me. And at the time, I want to say at the time there, because I don't think I was coming to therapy um, ready um, and with the potential... I'm going to say for me, it was all relative, the right attitude. I was still quite angry. And so when I was met with hostility from the therapist, I was ready to go at her as well. I'll say, fuck you too. Like, you're not for me either. And so I parked that there. And I, but I knew there was just something out there for me. As a therapist, if I had an angry client, my response to them would not be angry. It would be, (laughs) what is the hurting beneath your anger? Yeah. And just even like me acknowledging that I needed to go to therapy, like I felt a bit of a stigma. I did feel a bit of that stigma of only people who go to therapy are really weak. And I have no problem in saying that that was my train of thought before. And through Grief Gang and through learning, I've absolutely unlearned that. But I remember, um, and I said to you this before, about speaking to my dad and saying, my mum was white and my dad is black, and saying to my dad, like, I think I need therapy. And like, just saying to him, like, I don't feel okay. And I, I didn't know what I was expecting, but he was like, I support you. I'm here for you. Let me help you. And so the regular stereotypes and stigmas around the black community that like, we don't go to therapy and that we, we view therapy as something that is only for like white community, you know, all those stereotypes there. It was really comforting to have that support, obviously from my only remaining parent and it being my dad. And so even though therapy didn't work for me at the time, I'm so glad that I at least just dipped my toe into it and actually asked for help because I still do have a chip on my shoulder about asking for help. I do very much live with, if you want a job doing, do it yourself. You get out and you do it yourself and you go. Um, You don't rely on anybody. And I definitely do think that has been heightened since losing my mum of, I don't have that safety net anymore of mum. Like I just don't have that fall back on like, oh, if it all goes Pete Tong and I've got nothing, you know, I can just rely on mum, not like financially, but you know, mentally and emotionally, like I don't have that safety net anymore. But yeah, I, I went to therapy and it didn't work for me, but I knew that I wasn't alone in this, that I thought I'm not the only person in this bloody world who therapy hasn't worked for, like surely. But back to your question of, is there a cost at being so young and doing this work? I think, yeah, you know, I'm 25 and I talk a lot about death and dying. And last year was a huge like catalyst year for me of learning boundaries and um, when to say no and when to go, this has served me today and I do not need to push or exert myself anymore. But Grief Gang for me was born out of desperation. And when you have your desperate need met, you're like, I want more. I want to meet more people. I want to talk to more people. I want to learn more. And even though the topic is heavy and sometimes morbid and distressing, 
when when you've gone quite so long without it and you can still remember what that time was like without that support and that community um it's really hard to say no and put a boundary in place to something that you quite thoroughly enjoy and that's what I really struggled with last year of I was so exhausted both mentally and physically with the work that I was doing but I was enjoying the work that I was doing I just think boundaries are so key because as much as talking about death and dying might fulfill you and, and provide you a purpose, you are of a young age and kind of, um, it, it, you need to have the band to remember you're 25, go out and live your life and go out to the bar and dance with your friends. But then on the flip side too, being so young and in the work of death and dying and going through a bereavement so young, it's really taught me how to live. I do look at some of my peers in my friendship groups and afar kind of who haven't experienced a bereavement and their daily gripes it's it's taught me that nothing is an emergency you're exactly where you're meant to be since starting grief gang and it just kind of taking off I did lose a bit of sight of that and actually realizing why did you start grief gang Amber you started grief gang because your mum died and you know that absolutely shook your world and you look at those that you love differently you hold them a bit tighter you say yes to more plans with them rather than no just it's 100% taught me how to live you recognize how precious family and people you love are I was wondering in relation to you and your dad and your brother that they're both men grieving and you're a woman grieving and women and men tend to grieve differently how the three of you I think I want to know it presently, like I want to know in mm. this minute, how the three of you are recalibrating your relationship given there's the space where your mum was. Yeah, we're coming up seven years and that, that just feels like an, an insane amount of years, but then still feels so like yesterday. It's so strange. And a lot has changed in that time. Like my, my parents weren't together at the time of my mum's death and weren't for about a good five years before that. And we're now at a stage where my dad has a new long-term partner and with that comes like its complexities and stuff like that and things have changed in kind of conversations with my dad around mum you know my dad was married to my mum for 25 years and he was the next closest thing I could ask about mum what I felt like and kind of now there's this additional person in the space it's a bit have to be a bit more calculated as to when I may ask those questions in fear of making someone uncomfortable so that's kind of where I'm at with dad can I ask you something about your dad and I don't know if she's your stepmom or his partner or whatever but do you have a kind of very ambivalent feeling towards her that on the one hand you're pleased your dad has got someone to love him and on on the other hand you're raging that she's taken your mum's place yeah it's interesting this because <laughs> with my with my dad um and I have, I have no problem saying there is rage and it's been it'll be approaching two years that they've been together and they're still like I've said rage is still a very comfortable feeling for me but I just don't express it as much like I used to but the rage isn't from like her filling in mum's space the rage is in me feeling like she's taking away my dad and my only surviving parent. And it's the the panic in that of how dare you take him away from me? He is my only parent and you've got him booked and busy every single week and I can't see him. But my logical mind knows that to not be... And me and my dad, we have had conversations and very blaring conversations about this of... He said, I'm, I'm, you, I'm your dad. I'm not going nowhere and no one will ever be in the space of that. But then reality kind of hits in day to day. So that's kind of where we're at. And there's a lot of rage and kind of unspoken things there. And it's something I do want to speak about on the podcast and explore more of navigating when the surviving parent moves on and finds a new partner um, because it's very complex because I am I am happy for my dad to find love and though him my mum's marriage didn't work out it's nice to see him happy and it's almost like when I do see him happy I'm like I get that little like oh that's nice and to see him laugh and to smile and then I'm like no suppress it no 
go away. I'm I'm honestly, you see the movies of like, you know, like the awful stepchild, like it kind of is like me. <laughs> and my dad's like, Amber, you're 25. Like we've had arguments and conversations about it. And, and in his mind, he kind of thinks, but you're 25 and you've moved out of home. Like, why are you so worried and bothered about me? And like, like yearning for me. I kind of am going back to like 19 year old Amber. And if not before and being like, but you're my daddy and you're my, my only parent. And like, I need to know that when I, when, or if I need you, you are going to be there. And I know that to be true, that he will always be there, but just sometimes just that reassurance. I think that's what it is. And if that's a really unfamiliar place for me, because I am not a woman who needs reassuring, I very much can reassure myself. But I guess when it comes to that parental role, I think I do. I need that reassurance. I think that's where I've lacked it from. You know, my mum was definitely more of my cheerleader of, you know, you're amazing. Put your mind to anything you want and you can do it. I miss that cheerleader. I think this will resonate with so many people, what you're saying about the relationship with the other person and somehow being robbed of your surviving parent. And it's the 19-year-old mm. Amber that panics because she mm. knows a parent can die. And so it taps into that sense of abandonment that I'm going to be left. So I really get that. And I also, uh, this is a tricky question, which you may not want to answer, but did you have a, a thought that you didn't want to have that you'd have preferred the other parent to die than your mum? Yeah. Yeah. And that's not a, a nasty question to ask. And it's very honest because I think it's great that you asked that because I know that many people do have that feeling. And I would say absolutely in the last year since I moved out and left home, I had that feeling a lot and that thought a lot of and thinking about what if it was the other way around? Mum would never do this with like a new partner with us. Mum would talk to us more and have more open dialogue with us about things rather than just doing. And I don't even want to sit and say like, it's a really ugly thing to think because I think that's being quite belittling and being a bit like, I don't know, gospel about it. Like, oh, if you think that you're an awful person, I know there's so many people that have thought, well, if it was my other parent, you, you do think of what would life be? It's a normal, healthy feeling, although it's an uncomfortable one. There's conversations to be had with my dad about parenting and parenting children who are grieving but are coming into adulthood. And like, I'm a young adult, my brother, he's 32, 33 this year with two children himself. And kind of with my brother, like where we, my brother are today, I will never forget there was a distinct time very much and it's a painful memory sometimes to go to of the day after our mum died so um, where mum mum was found in her car outside a post office where she'd initially had her her heart attack and was found by a PCO officer and they she was left unconscious Gosh. for a while and then they took her to the hospital so that's what that's wow. a, essentially where like we've said she kind of died she did die and then kind of revived her but she was brain dead and so it's outside a post office where, where near her work it was so we kind of I think the day after she died the Sunday went to lay some flowers near like the area where it was and loads of friends and family came with us in in support and my brother hugged me and we were hugging each other I mean my brother but we've got a seven year gap between us we've lived very different stages of our life at different times and um mm. he hugged me and he said it's just you and me now and I remember in that moment really going, poor, yeah, it is just you and me now. And I remember thinking, oh, but what about dad? But then as years have gone by, feeling like, yeah, sometimes it is just me and him now who will always hold this gaping hole of the loss of mum in our lives. As much as dad and mum were married for 25 years and he grieves for her, but it does feel like there is this separation that has got involved now. When your mum died, did you and your brother live in your mum's house or you moved in with your dad? Yes. Me, my mum and my brother were living in the same household and my dad was 
had moved, had left the family home. So now essentially under this one household was just me and my brother. There was a question of my dad coming back into the household and he offered to move back in. But we said, we've already gone through so much change. Our mum has just died. And then having our father, who's not lived under our roof for five years, come back, like that's just even more strange. So we're like, let's just see how we get by. And we did. My brother and his partner moved in and and we kind of were living under there as a three. And that had its own challenges as well. Just There was just so much grief in this household. And the house just stunk of her. And it just reeked and I wanted to be everywhere but home so I went back to work the Thursday after she died so that was less about five days I went back to work very quickly I still don't know if it was a good thing or a bad thing but at the time it felt really great I, I just started this job as well so no one really knew me from Adam everyone just knew me as the new girl Amber no one knew me as new girl Amber dead mum and I could choose whether people knew that I think your default response of going back to work and living in that oscillation between loss orientation, restoration orientation, probably was your most useful survival mechanism. That if you'd stayed mm-hmm. at home in the house that was stinking and reeking of your mum and not yeah. working at all, you would have had no part of you that knew how to live. Because yeah. at least going to work, it gave you the structure. This is a work version, Amber, that I can put not much aside, but in a, mm. I can put her slightly to the back of my mind, put on a show. And I actually think that's yeah. really helpful. It probably was the best thing you could have done, actually. I think definitely uh, over the years, I've been challenged so much on, on interviews and just people sharing that just the jaw drops on the floor. They're like, oh my God, five days. And it had, it definitely made me think like, oh God. And again, it fed oh my God, do I not love my mum? But the logistics of it was, Julia, I was like, I need money. I need to work. There was elements of, oh, I don't want to be at home. But the nuts and bolts was, I was 19. I'd just like passed my driving test. And I had a car. I was like, I've got to pay for a fucking car. I've got to get to work. I want, <laughs> I've got to live. And that was definitely something I got from my mum. Mum went through so much shit in her life from from birth to to death she went through a lot she was like the show keeps fucking going guys I'd see my mum cry at things and she'd cry she'd crumble to the floor she would let herself crumble and she'd get up and she'd go right what's the plan then what we doing and I would be like oh my god this woman she's not mentally okay but actually the show kept going because I think for her she felt where I've got no safety net I can't let this crumble can't lose my home for my children, I have to put food on the table, keep calm and carry on. I think in our culture now it's changing in the awareness of of mental health and what support that we need. Mm. It has amped up the need to let yourself really feel all of the difficult things that you're feeling and name your mental state. And, And I applaud that. But what I don't encourage is that you lose the capacity to keep calm and carry on too. I think we need both. Yeah. I think we need an aspect of ourselves that gets the bills paid, that does exactly what your mum does, falls on the floor, cries, says it's awful, really wails, and then gets up and cooks the dinner. And we do that in and out. Because I think if you stay on the floor, you feed yourself with the misery and then it's mm-hmm. really hard to get up from the floor. So hard. There was times the way my mum navigated through life and she wasn't the best at expressing her emotions. And I respect her for the, like, the last kind of seven years of her life. She became a single mother, dad supported, but a single mother. She'd been through a lot with her own family, you know, to do with race and, and marrying a black man. And all this comes up when people die as well, which is fascinating to me. All the family secrets come out then. And um, I, I applaud her and no. I thank her for, I know, <laughs> yeah, they all come out then. So you didn't know about that, that they were against her marrying a black man? 
No, I didn't. And I don't speak with my mum, a, a portion of my mum's side of the family, but only because of that, you know, and mum married or was with dad very early in the 90s, late 80s, early 90s. And mum came from a very small seaside town of Great Yarmouth. And within a year, mum was pregnant with my brother and was moving down south to be with dad and, and to be as a family. And then Yes, seven years go by because of this and being unhappy about this. And then I'm born. My mum's mother died in childbirth. Um, So my mum never knew her mum. Oh, gosh. Oh, my goodness. I could write a book about my mum and kind of her her life and what Mm. she'd been through. My mum was raised by her mum's sisters and and her nannies and grandmothers. So she was very much a powerful woman surrounded by powerful women too and raised by them. But yeah, after that seven years, I was born and kind of there, I think there was a bit of a conversation of your daughter is having a family and you're missing out that whole complexities of after she died of discovering things about a side of a family that I looked to this side of the family for real comfort after she died and I wasn't getting it I felt that at times I had to be the adult um and that was really interesting of going through a bereavement so young and me being the youngest of the whole family um, mm. and wanting to crumble, but actually looking around me and looking at the elders in my life and looking at them and going, oh, no, actually, I can't crumble because you're a mess. And actually, I need to comfort you because you're the one who's on the floor and I need to pick you up. So I definitely kept calm and carried on for quite a long while. And like you, I agree. I think to have an element and still a part of you that can let yourself crumble and go to you know the depths of that pain and go wipe mm. those tears and go enough's enough now. I need to do what I need to do to survive still because... Mm. I, I never did have really kind of a phase of where I crumbled and was like, I'm not going to come out of this. Like, I don't know. I always knew, well, there is an end date to this because I can't simply cry my life away. I do have to go to my job. I do have to spend time with my partner. I would like to laugh again. I, do you know what? I actually do like laughing. So I would like to laugh again at some You're point. You're good at laughing. Um, laughter to me has been my medicine, whether it's actually even laughing at my grief and the shit show of it is, or just actually like seeking out that joy in life. I love it. I love to live. I love to laugh. I love to love. And you got that from your mum and you got your anger mm. from your mum and you, you got yeah. a lot from your mum. <laughs> but it sounds like the complexity of what she was living with of the racism in her family that has a legacy left in your relationship Mm. with them and how they feel now that she's died, given that there was some kind of estrangement. I suppose what I'm wondering about, is there some of that that's in you that needs to be unpacked? And what's hers and what's yours in relation Mm -hmm. to them? It's so interesting. And it's a part of my grief that once I closed the door on it, I said, that's enough now. Um, and never really went back to it because my mum, my mum forgave. My mum did forgive. It wasn't when she died, they were still estranged. Oh, good. Thank goodness. Yeah. So I only knew about this estrangement after she died. And I was like, oh my God, how am I hearing about this now? But then as I kind of looked back across my whole lifespan and the relationship that we had with this side of the family, it was very distant and it all started to make sense a bit. So when she died and then I discovered this news, there was always an internal feeling in me of like, we're family, but we're not really family. We're not close. Hmm. And like, so I was a lot closer with other people in my mum's family. Learning the, what she went through and what they actually put her through, I almost took on this new baggage, like this, un, this, this is already resolved, fight. quote unquote, exactly. baggage, yet the new fight. I, I created like a new fight. And at times I questioned, I was like, am I just digging up old wounds? But it was really strange to say because their attitude at the time of mum's death was not great. So I was like, I could actually respect if things previously before and mistakes were made and we could learn from it. But there were some questionable things after she died. And even on the day of her funeral about comments about people who had traveled to come to her funeral and making remarks of, oh, there's a lot of brown people here today. 
And I'll never forget that particular oh, family God. member saying that. Yeah, oh my yeah, God. Yeah, yeah I, I didn't hear it, but it was one side of my, a, a closer family member on my mum's side Jesus. heard one of the family members on the no, no longer speaking family side say that. And they said, yeah, a lot of brown people here today. And um, this family member turned around and was like, yeah, people who loved her, you know, what does it matter? And yeah, it was in that moment that I realized that they've not changed and they're not going to change. And actually I'm a lot unhappier with them in my life than I am with them. And that was really hard to do because there have been times when I've wanted to ask my mum things of like am I doing the right thing like I don't live with like an internal monologue of my mum I used to of like what would mum do but I I very much stepped into my own womanhood and my own being in the last couple of years and knowing that she's taught me enough to know what's right and what's wrong but around that time when I was cutting ties off with this part of her family there was like a whole new grief with that because I was purposefully cutting off these people who one were part of her DNA, like who were like the gatekeepers to memories of her. To her memories. But I had to, yeah, I, I had to make the conscious decision to go, like, I have to let that go because you caused me so much pain and angst and anguish in my life that I'm actually more at peace with letting that chapter of my mum go than have you in my life. You are too toxic for me. You do not make me feel good. And that was really, really hard. But over the years, I questioned that decision and that choice. But penultimately, it's been the best decision I ever made. Um, And I connect and and keep the memories through other members of the family. But as your mum died, there was so many other multiple losses and complexities Mm. that were linked to her and her relationship with her family Mm. that you then had to grieve and end. And I'm really proud of you, I guess, for making such a tough decision and Mm. that you're so clear that it was such a good decision. Yeah, I can't believe we've come to the end of our conversation. There's so much that we haven't spoken about, (laughs) Amber. I want to kind of talk forever. I know. I wondered if you had a question for me. I think back to the question you asked me of how being 25 and doing this work, what would you say for someone like me who who is in this work? And I do feel like there's like an air of, you know, whether it's too much to say, like you're a mum of, of four and like you do give me this air of mum. And like when I was with you and yeah. Emily that day and when you say like, oh, hello, Angel, like you do, you give that mum energy and it's <laughs> so comforting. So like when we did that event that day and you said you were like, what mm. are you doing to look after yourself? Where's your supervision? Mm. And I was like, oh, mm. I don't know. It felt so nice to be like, look cared for then but what would yes. your advice be for someone like me and anyone else who is quite young and looking to get into bereavement work and whatever that looks like to like look after themselves I mean I think that is a a good question and I do feel maternal towards you I feel a real fondness <laughs> and warmth for you Amber and also I was aware that I was a mum to my daughter in front of you when you were talking about your mum's death and that there was mm-hmm. a you know a real missing in that for you and yet somehow you were able to be with us it didn't trigger you which I, mm. I was curious about mm. I mean I think you've said a lot of the things is recognizing that you have a good no and that you have boundaries. And I know this from my own experience. It is very addictive being wanted and being needed because you feel powerful and grief is often about feeling powerless. And so it gives you a sense of like, I can change the world and then it can use up all your emotional energy. I think it's important to have supervision and a, and a mm-hmm. kind of place where you debrief so you can put stuff down. And with you and with other people listening who it's a lot of their life, I would be curious as to the point in your life where it can be a smaller part of your life mm. so that it, you will keep it going, but that you grow and expand parts that aren't to do with death and dying. 
I want to see you having fun and laughter <laughs> and partying and getting out there and being silly. Yeah. And if you spend all day talking to people who are grieving, it's hard to switch in the evening. Yeah. The thing I'll leave you with is how you spend your day is how you spend your life. Mm-hmm. And do you want to be spending your whole life in the bereavement world? And I have spent my whole life. So I started yeah. in my 30s. But I think there's a difference and maybe mm. it, it isn't a real difference, but I think there's a difference being in your 20s and doing it and in your 30s. Totally. I think it's definitely tapping into something that I already knew. I've already made the intention this year for myself of less work, more living and more spending time with the living. Um, and nice. those that I love who are living. I had a bit of a wobble at the end of last year talking to my best friend and I was like, I feel like I've been a really shit friend to you this year. Yeah. Like I just felt like I wasn't showing up in a way that for the people that I loved in a way that I would be proud of. And that's been a real kind of motivator for me this year to be like, I don't want to feel like that at the end of this year. I want to look back and go, look at the memories I made, both career wise and with friends and family. It doesn't have to be one or the other. I can have both if I want to. Well, I mean, I think that's fantastic wisdom, isn't it? That you're putting a lot of life in your life Mm. and you want to build experiences in your memory that are lively experiences so Mm. that when you look back at your life, you've got those fun experiences and also that your friendships really matter and they need time. They need space to evolve and feel close. And I guess that is also the legacy of your mum, that she taught you mm. that people really in the end matter more than anything. And oh, yeah. the people that are living, you need to invest in as well as yeah. your mum. Totally. Do you have a last word of wisdom that you want the listeners to know? What I was going to say at the end of there, maybe a bit of wisdom to kind of think about if you've been through bereavement and or just maybe like me, you work a bit too much, you're in the space and you're doing a lot of work and everyday worries. I often think about deathbed amber. <laughs> I always think Do about, you? I don't like, think like I'm dying, <laughs> but I often think of when I'm in a real rut of like, work or you know a podcasting because that can be stressful as we know and just if I'm just really getting a bit Mm. down in the dumps about uh, overwhelmness I just go what would deathbed amber actually remember of this (laughs) especially when you're grieving and you've been through such a loss know when to let that joy in so often I hear people especially in the immediacy after a death of like I don't think I deserve to be happy I don't deserve joy and I challenge that and I say you of all deserve the joy if any kind of person in this world deserves it it is you you have been in the storm step into the sunshine you deserve it That's a lovely way to end, Amber. And people can find you on Grief Gang Podcast, Grief Gang Instagram. Find me on any major platforms. And yeah, I'm there. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, Amber, so much. That was a really beautiful conversation. means a lot to me that you've joined us. One of the very special things about this podcast is that at the end of every episode, I get the opportunity to reflect on the conversation with my two psychotherapist daughters, Sophie and Emily. Sophie is an adult psychotherapist and Emily is a child psychotherapist. And as we all specialise in different forms of therapy, it is really interesting to see what their takeaways are what their insights are, and if they think there was anything that I could have said or done differently. You'll quickly learn not all therapists agree on everything. But let's hear what their thoughts are this week. Hi, Emily and Sophie. We are going to talk about Amber Jeffrey and this really illuminating conversation about being a young person with a mum dying. And wondering what your initial thoughts are. Well, first of all, I find Amber just such a pleasure to listen to. Um, I think she mentioned I do have met her and know her a little bit. 
and it's always a joy to hear her. Um, but what really stood out for me initially was the kind of before and after of death that you're sort of just living your life and suddenly at age 19 she was suddenly catapulted into this brand new world and nothing is the same again and so to me it felt like she didn't just lose her mum she also lost her childhood because at 19 actually you're not really ready for the world in lots and lots of ways and you still need parenting most 19 year olds still need some form of parenting in some ways and yet she didn't get that because when she lost her mum she also lost the person who was like head of her household her primary caregiver and it made me just think about this domino effect of loss that often when somebody we love dies we lose them but we often also lose all sorts of things that go with them like the safety that they provide whether that's emotional whether that's physical whether that's a combination and the kind of knock-on effect of that mm. and the sort of long journey of adaptation to such a sort of profound loss isn't it because it's not just as you say the loss of the person it's a loss of an imagined future it's a loss of who you are as an identity like I think often with clients it's quite a long journey to find out who they are again after having had that experience you know she talked about for a long time being a really angry person and then rediscovering that she's not actually a really angry person and it's you reconfigure and change and that's a very in that process where there's a lot of um change going on in the while you're in the throes of grief is really unsettling because you often don't know how you're going to react to things or who you are so there's all these different levels that makes it challenging particularly with a sudden loss like hers one of the things I thought she was very brave, and I think people listening um, can resonate with, is, you know, the wrong parent died. And sometimes it's even the wrong child mm. died. You know, my favourite child mm. died, or the wrong grandparent died. And th there's a lot of... Shame, complexity. Or taboo. I think it's it's really, really... It's taboo. Really, I think it's taboo. It's taboo and it's complex and it's incredibly courageous to sort of speak the unspeakable um, yeah, because it good. does feel like I'm not supposed to think that, I'm not supposed to feel that, and yet it's an incredibly natural thing to think and feel and there isn't a right or a wrong. <laughs> it just is to a certain extent, but it, but I think it takes a lot to be able to say it and I think, you know, Amber has a lot of clarity in that, but I think it's very relatable for many other people. And that by naming our most taboo things or shameful things, we then open them up to the possibility of relating to them differently. When we are ashamed and we lock them in a sort of secret lockbox because we're afraid if we look at them or, heaven forbid, anybody else looked at them, that would be the end or we're unlovable for having them, then they, they get stuck and frozen as not only that thought or feeling, but our way of thinking and relating to that thought or feeling. And it becomes like part of us. We become bad. Whereas if you allow it to be voiced, then it can transition. Even if the thought or feeling doesn't change itself, how we feel about that thought or feeling can change. We are all multitudes. So that thought or that feeling that feels completely taboo and that we shouldn't have it and it's not allowed, it's very rarely the whole of what we think and we feel and giving ourselves permission to think and feel whatever that taboo thing is, whether it's related to death, whatever, relationships, I think all sorts of things we can feel like, oh, I'm not supposed to think that. But I think allowing ourselves to feel it and think it and even say it, <laughs> that gives you more space to allow the other parts of yourself as well. I also thought it was helpful to hear about uh, someone who's responded through real anger in grief because we often hear more stories of sadness and actually it's really just such a common response to feel really angry angry with possibly with the person who died angry with what happened angry with other, angry people, with other around. people around and the anger for some people is a really powerful place or a good defended place to live when things feel unbearable or in her case as she described it was survival and you referenced to Emma when you're younger in her case, 19, it's like, I didn't have a lot of choice. I needed to get on. I needed to have a job. I needed to have life. And, and anger can feel like energy in the tank. 
um, when there isn't any other energy in the tent because what's there is mostly sadness. Yes, and I think it also was very interesting to me, this idea of our default emotions, the emotions that are comfortable for us and that this is not just about bereavement, but I think in general, we all have emotions that feel like this is a safe and acceptable emotion. And it usually comes from emotions that were safe and acceptable for you when you were a child, as you were growing up. So it might sound like in Amber's family, anger was like the default emotion. It was okay to feel angry and get angry and be explosive. Whereas in other families, it might be being sad is okay. Being sad is acceptable. You're not supposed to be angry. That's like a bad, icky emotion. And I think it's... We're, we're not very good at being right. angry. I, not that I was thinking about <laughs> us at all. <laughs> yes, the Samuel family, I would say anger is... Led by your mother, who isn't comfortable <laughs> so with well, anger. Yes, for lots of good reasons. For lots of good reasons. Yes, working yeah. on it. Um, and so I think it's actually quite a helpful exercise. I think I've talked about this before to write down the five core emotions of anger, sadness, fear, joy, disgust. And you can draw a circle. And if you think about when you were a child, as you were growing up, the emotions that were acceptable, and you write those in the circle, and then outside of the circle, write the ones that were not acceptable, that felt like you are not, I'm not supposed to feel this. And then sometimes there are emotions that were sometimes allowed and sometimes not allowed and write those on the line. And I think it's just quite a nice visual way of thinking about your relationship to different emotions. And are there actually emotions in yourself that you're still not allowing yourself to feel because they're too frightening because you were told that you're not really supposed to feel those things. Yeah. And I think a lot of parenting advice now is focused on validating all of your children's emotions and allowing them to feel the full spectrum even if you don't validate the behavior. I also was very interested in Amber talking about therapy not being for her <laughs> because I think therapy isn't for everyone. I imagine that if you're someone listening to this podcast, you might be interested in therapy given that it's called Therapy Works. But I do think it's really helpful to know that there are other ways of finding your way through grief and obviously what she does, which is kind of creating community, I think is such a important resource that people can use if they feel like therapy isn't the right place for them. Um, there are also um, death cafes, which are um, free drop-in places that are all over the country. And I actually think they're international as well. And it's this just get together, essentially. Community. Yes, community, where you can just drop in, I think there's tea, cake, and people just meet in Starbucks or and people talk wherever. about death. And it doesn't mean that you have got to have just experienced a death. It's just for people who are interested in death and want to talk about it and share experiences. And it really made me think about there are actually all these other different ways that we can support ourselves that don't involve therapy. Yes. And you saying that also makes me think about that therapy sort of historically is culturally very white and Eurocentric or Western in its ways of being and its sort of cultural norms about how we behave in therapy. And I was listening to a podcast the other day about a, a Latino woman and a black woman therapist who set up a group for parents, for women, and how they found themselves just adapting all the norms. So suddenly there was lots of contact and there was hugs and there was the timing got more fluid and there was lots of food and that made those communities feel that's much more for the groups they were saying that was much more intuitive and natural and put them at ease whereas there's quite um sort of white rigid, rigid boundaries, boundaries and we don't touch each other and everything's very precise and not on time that that culturally made them feel uncomfortable like they didn't belong and that maybe certain formats that or cultures or communities that is a better fit um, or finding a therapist who's possibly from the same minority as you can also sometimes be helpful and you can feel better understood. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a huge amount of research on 
minorities and their engagement in mental health care and access to it. And then not just access to it, but also a lot of research into minorities who do access it, that their sort of consistent engagement in it, so their repeat going back to get treatment is just infinitely lower than white communities. And I think it's exactly that about what works for different people. And when I worked at Yale, I was actually part of a research group called Mamba. And it was about providing access to um, people who don't genuinely engage in mental health care. In this particular instance, it was high-risk mothers with um, postnatal depression. And their idea was to make it much more easy to engage in mental health care. And they did that in all sorts of different ways. For example, they provided childcare, they provided money for a bus ticket to be able to get to the place. And they also provided support in places that people automatically already go. So they would have a mental health provider in your local supermarket, in hair salons, in nail salons. And so having it a place that isn't so formal and like maybe inaccessible and maybe somewhere that they've had a really negative experience in the past and just trying to kind of break down the barriers that prevent people from engaging. Yes, and that they, we can't escape the fact that the history of racial violence means that if you're a white professional and you're working with a person of colour, that's in the room and um, whether that's in a group or in a one-to-one of therapy and that that somehow needs to be acknowledged and that that not to be can make it in a much more unsafe space for someone because even if they haven't had a specific negative experience with mental health, they may much might have had a negative experience of establishment of people in power of white people. So one of the things I say is as we sit opposite each other, we bring our histories with us. And we have very different histories. And mine is a white privileged history. And I ask them how they define theirs and what it brings. And we look at where they might clash or acknowledge what I might misunderstand and then open the door for them to be able to tell me, no, you don't get this. You're not understanding me or I've made assumptions. And so I think just naming it is really helpful. The the last thing I wanted to look at um for people listening is that often pre-existing fault lines in families are the places where relationships can um go asunder you know where there's already been difficulty where there is then a, a sudden and unexpected death families don't tend to get closer the fractures tend to get worse because what caused them in the first place, the behaviours, the judgment, the blaming tends to be the thing that pervades again in a family. I don't know if you had ideas of what would protect families against that. Honesty. I think the thing of secrets coming out after somebody has died can be very, very destructive because there's no way of addressing them with the person who's died. So I think often we don't tell our children things because we want to protect them. But most times children and you know adult children <laughs> need at least a version of the truth that is age appropriate if you've got younger children. Sometimes what happens after somebody's died is all these things come out that weren't known about when the person was alive. And I think that can be really damaging and difficult to repair. I think also having a tolerance for other people holding a different narrative to you, that if you are engaging in these conversations where you speak your versions of your experience and allow yourself to hear them without there needing to be a right version that you can all live with your different stories and that can be okay, that you don't need to agree who was to blame for this or that all your stories don't need to line up. I think it's helpful to be able to talk your stories and be heard respectfully and to hear other people's stories respectfully so that you can, at least in the beginning, just coexist, even if you can't be close. Also, when you need to, like Amber needed to, end relationships. <laughs> if they're toxic and harmful and just, you know, giving you a lot of distress, I think 
knowing when to protect Holding yourself. Holding a boundary. Is also very hard, but really important. There's one last thing I was going to say, which is quite a different topic. Was at the end, you were talking with Amber about um, her being in grief so young and so early and wanting her to have fun. And then I thought, well, that's funny, isn't it? Because two things I thought. One, I think both me and Emily have been in this game in one version or another since we left university <laughs> um, in our in early, early 20s. I think I did my first training when I was 21 or 20. And it doesn't feel to me like I've lived in a heavy world as a result, necessarily. And that I was thinking, you know, the 20s can be quite a misunderstood era. Like there can be this like, expectation that it should be like yeah, full no. of sex and fun and parties and that's what I want people to have. But I was married before <laughs> I know, I in my twenties. Yeah. Like, I'm not so. sure that is. It's often a really transitional, <laughs> difficult time. You're becoming an adult for the first time. You don't know what you're doing. You're trying to find your identity. And sure, you might be having more relationships and things are more fluid in that phase and maybe in other phases of life potentially. Um, I don't think I necessarily think of the 20s as like, that's when you get to have fun. I think I loved Amber's response, which was, I just say to myself, I am where I'm supposed to be. And I think that is such a insightful and wise, you know, way of looking at it, that who knows what will happen in the future for any of us, but we are where we're supposed to be. And maybe my response in a kind of Jungian sense was that what I want for her yeah. is what I want for myself. <laughs> you wanted to do more sex and partying, but you had four children. <laughs> so lovely, Amber. Thank you so much for your kind of courage and honesty and insight. I think. And your swearing. You, and you received swearing. the prize for most swearing on our podcast. <laughs> Did she? That's good. Excellent. Yeah. Um, maybe we should have a prize at the end yeah. of every um, season. <laughs> so thank you, lovely Amber. And thank you, Emily and Sophie. And thank you, everyone listening. Do share it with people that you think will find it useful or helpful or funny. Also, do please rate and subscribe and review the podcast so more people can find it and listen to us. Um, until next week. Thank you. Bye bye. <laughs>